been a busy week. It's going to be busy. Let's just let this put it. It's going to be busy every single day from now until the next provincial election. Let's just get it out there. There's always going to be a story on the premier. What did he do today? What did he do yesterday? What's he going to do tomorrow? Oh, I bet he's going to do something terrible. So there is an awful lot of chatter about Premier Ford. Did he abuse his power? Didn't he abuse it? I mean, it depends on who you ask. And then it depends on do they know how the law works and the politics of those laws and the politics behind all of this. So if you're on Team Ford, you're going to champion his right to use a power built into our Constitution. And I, I think a lot of the base will say, good for him. Flex your muscle and send a warning to your critics that if they think that they're going to shut down your mandate by running to the courts on every little, you know, piece of legislation he puts forward, then send them a message. But those who hate Ford will look at this as a blatant overreach of power. They'll say sour grapes. They also say it's not important enough to use such an important power. Well, then why have the power? why, Why is it in our Constitution if it can't be used? And why not this case? The way I look at it, if Ford lets this ruling stand, it sets precedent. Sure, you can appeal it, but, you know, I think given most who have read the ruling already believe that the judge overreached, that to me is even more reason to push back. Because we're starting to see a real trend in this country. And that is an increased number of courtrooms are being used, I think, to go around laws that are made in this country. Which, if you want to argue about who is undermining democracy, doesn't that undermine it? Well, let's ask someone who has a much, much bigger brain than I do. His name is Howard Anglin. And when this story broke, I started following him because he actually understands what's going on. He is the executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And he also knows the political side of things because he was deputy chief of staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He joins me now. Hi, Howard. Hello, Alex. How are you? Well, I'm good. Not quite as good as those on the left who are ripping their hair out tonight, because I don't see this quite as uh, alarming uh, as they do. But how do you see it? Is there been an abuse of power here? Uh, yes, um, I think the abuse of power was on uh, was the judge's ruling in which he uh, found that the charter provision he wanted to apply to uh, invalidate Bill Five doesn't actually apply in this case, so he just rewrote the Charter, uh, importing the principles of the section he wanted to apply into a section that does apply. Uh, that was a, a novel and unsound ruling. So that, that was the closest we have to an abuse of power here. On okay. the use of the notwithstanding clause, um, it's an unusual use in that usually it's a last resort and usually you would appeal first. At the same time, as you noted, this was uh, such a clearly wrong-headed decision that uh, I don't think it's in a it's certainly legitimate for for Ford to push back using the notwithstanding clause. Is it my imagination? Are courtrooms more and more, I'm not saying they're all activists, but are we not seeing more and more court cases where we're seeing laws made in this country, um, you know, bent around the charter to get the results you want? It just seems to me that all of a sudden when you've got situations like Trans Mountain, you've got issues like now we've got Greenpeace suing Ford, you've got, you know, the union suing Ford, you've got the ruling that came out yesterday. You've got all these groups that are trying to get these these cases into courtrooms because they don't like the laws and they're hiding behind the charter to get the result they want. Am I imagining that? No, I don't think you're imagining it. Um, I think 
it has to be said, it's been going on since uh, shortly after the Charter uh, became part of our Constitution in 1982. Uh, within a couple of years, the courts had already decided that they were going to overstep the bounds that were set out uh, for them. as They were given a power for the first time in our history to strike down laws on substantive grounds for, because they violated the Charter. Um, this was a something really new in uh, the Westminster democratic tradition. The UK's judges still don't have this power. Australian judges don't have this power. New Zealand judges don't have this power. Canada was making a move towards a US-style system where our constitution would be rooted in a Bill of Rights that could be enforced by the courts over the democratically enacted will of parliament. Uh, so pretty pretty quickly after that, uh, the courts went the way that the American courts had gone over the last uh, century and assumed a role far in excess of what I think uh, anybody who uh, who uh, voted to, um, to patriot the Constitution uh, anticipated. So I, I think we're seeing it a little more now than uh, in the last decade in that we now have the first generation of judges who were educated under the charter system. Right. So when the charter was first passed, you still had judges that had been trained as lawyers under the old British system where you had parliamentary supremacy and judges um, only struck down laws if they violated the jurisdictional divide between provincial and federal authority. But they didn't strike it down just because something violated a quote right. Um, and now, so you, you had a built-in reticence, I think, on the part of a lot of judges. Now we're having uh, judges who are trained in law school, who are told in law school that it's the role of judges to uh, get involved in political decisions and second-guess uh, legislatures. Okay, so then does it, <laughs> I hate to say this, but does it mean we have to revisit? Because I'm not sure that that's what the charter was set up for. And we're also seeing this uh, m- more use of things like the, um, the uh, I call them kangaroo courts, but I should probably be friendlier to them. Yeah. These these courts that are set up to deal with the human rights issues that, that seem to kind of set precedent after. But why have a government then if the courts are just going to, and I get that, they keep the checks and balances, but... You know, in this case, the judge decided that the government breached two sections of the charter. But I don't get how a candidate's freedom of expression was marred because it was shortened by a little bit of time. No one's stopping any candidate who wanted to run an election from going out and screaming from the rooftops. No, and nor do voters have a right to vote for any candidate in any ward. You have the right to vote for the candidates running in the ward. Uh, You can't. If every time we add new seats to the House of Commons, you can't complain. You don't have a right to vote in the previously redistricted uh, region. Uh, the, it, it needs to be said, the province has almost absolute authority mm-hmm. uh, over municipal matters. Uh, municipalities do not have an independent constitutional existence in, in our country. They are creations of provincial statute. The city of Toronto, as you know, was created controversially by a provincial statute in 1997, uh, the mega city. Uh, by the Harris government after no consultations and after they hadn't talked about it during the election. And that decision was upheld by the courts as a valid exercise of provincial authority. Um, this is this is no different. I mean, this, the province of Ontario could disincorporate the city of Toronto tomorrow. Sure. Surely <laughs> Don't give them any ideas. So surely it can change the number of councillors from 47 to 25. And having done so, your right to vote and candidates' right to run uh, only applies to those 25 wards. It doesn't apply to the old system. So the the judge really overreached and uh, interfered with the political system in an inappropriate way. And the notwithstanding clause is there 
so that when courts do engage in politics, the legislature can push back and say, you want to do politics, we can do politics. Right. So so if you go back to the argument that I was making that, you know, if you're a guy like Doug Ford and you watch what happened to his brother with everything he tried to get done was knocked down by activist groups who hated him, taking issues into courts, this to me might be not be the biggest and the most important issue he's dealing with, but it certainly sets a, sets a tone to say, if you want to play the game, we're going to play this game. And he can start pulling this thing out whenever he wants. Which I would not. Yeah, he, he could. He could. He um, could. Just the reality in, in my political experience. Uh, for those who say that this, this seems like a minor issue to invoke, notwithstanding clause, my experience is actually that it's rarely going to be invoked in the really big issues. For example, think of the hot button social issues we've had. In well, Trans Mountain. I mean, Mr. Trudeau, if you really wanted to get that pipeline built. Uh, yeah, I don't think the notwithstanding clause. I don't think would. Um, because it doesn't apply, unfortunately, to the duty to consult uh, right. with First Nations. It only applies to certain charter rights. Um, uh, but he could also legislate to streamline the approval process for mm-hmm. pipelines generally, um, and and should. But the uh, where, 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 where was I saying before? That? <laughs> it was uh, um, oh yeah, the notwithstanding clause. It's it's harder to use on hot button social issues because they are they often divide caucuses as well as just the general public. So it was um, the courts uh, finding a right to gay marriage in uh, a decade ago, and you had members of the Liberal Party on both sides of that, and members of the Conservative Party on both sides of that. Uh, when the Supreme Court found a right to physician-assisted death, you had members of all parties who were conflicted on that. So it, it's actually rare that it's going to be used on the really big, hot-button social issues. It's also riskier because those are emotionally and politically incendiary issues. Sure. So. It, it's almost inevitable it's going to be used on secondary political issues or issues that are, they may get people riled up, but they, they're not those really deep-seated um, issues of conscience. Um, yeah, like abortion so, and things like that. I think I yeah, do think so it's, it's interesting. Surprising. This is in line with other issues it's being used on. Right, and I do think it's interesting that you say that, you know, countries like Australia, UK, they've already got um, language written in that the courts can't pull the kind of thing that was pulled no. yesterday uh, as their protection. That's why you don't necessarily see uh, the fallout that we did. So for all the hysteria you have seen online and from what you're hearing in the conversation, what is um, what is the r- very wrong thing that you're hearing? I mean, wh- what is it that people should understand about what we have seen and, and kind of stomp out the fake news, so to speak, of what didn't happen? Yeah, I, I think... Where critics have a point that's valid is usually this is a last resort and he could have appealed. Um, and I, I'm not going to get into the political timing of the election. I'm not from Ontario. I don't have a dog in that fight. I'll leave that to you political experts <laughs> in Ontario to decide. Yeah. Uh, but what what's troubled me is I've seen a lot on online and fortunately online responses are not usually representative of general responses, but I've seen responses to the effect that somehow this is a major threat to our democracy or a threat to our, our rights or a threat to our freedoms or that uh, Ford is somehow undermining the Constitution. Uh, everybody needs to take a step back and remember that what you just said, mo- most of our peer countries that have the same political constitutional tradition as us, like Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, in those countries, the courts can't even strike down laws in the first place. Um, Parliament is still supreme in those countries. And so the fact that we have a small residual shred, a withered shred of parliamentary supremacy that can be pulled out and used on occasion um, is hardly a threat to our uh, constitutional democracy. If anything, it's in keeping with our 
Westminster constitutional tradition um, and keeping us from going fully into the U.S. style um, rights enforced by courts uh, based constitution. Well, I'm glad to know that the sun will come up tomorrow. The sky might be blue. I may live to tell another day. Thank you. I can't promise the blue sky, but <laughs> well, you'll live. You'll live to see another day. Good stuff, Howard. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. That is uh, Howard Anglin, who you can uh, follow. He's with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. He's got a lot more brain cells than I do. But if you want to follow him, you can because he has some terrific um, posts of how this works. You know, he gets through all the gray area and all the kind of fighting that you see. But it's an interesting read if you want to get up to date on what is happening. Quick break here. We'll take that conversation forward. And we're also going to talk about where NAFTA is because it doesn't sound like it's actually going that well. I'm not sure. But a lot of saber ravelry going on.